Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Alex. I'm the associate pastor. I don't know if any of you guys saw this news story or maybe it was in your Twitter feed, but we had a dad who posted his 10-year-old daughter's Christmas list, threw a photo of it up on his Twitter account, and this is a 10-year-old. The first thing you notice is 26 lines long, which, you know, that says something about an ambitious daughter. And, and some of these are fairly normal. So she'd like clothes and makeup and an American Girl doll and some pink duct tape, new sheets, an alarm clock. Cool. Then she has some aspirational items like an iPhone 11 or AirPods, a new MacBook Air, a real bunny. And then farther down the list, she would like clothes for the real bunny. But then she goes for broke, bless her heart. And about 80% of the way down there, she's got $4,000 on the list. Now, it doesn't have to be cash, PayPal, Venmo, you know, any of that would be okay. Gosh, you know, that's funny, but that's us, isn't it? I mean, that's our culture, not just Western culture in general, but I think it's the consumerism, it's the commercialization of Christmas. This really, I mean, this could have come from some of the kids that live in our neighborhoods. So what if we were to strip away from Christmas this kind of list? What if we were to try to peel back some of the layers that we've added, the traditions, you know, like, mm, I just love the smell of uh, candles at Christmas. Well, okay, that's cool, but that's not really at the heart of what Christmas is. I love those Christmas songs like, you know, Grandma Got Run Over by a Rain. Like, that's my, no. You know, there are things that we layer on top of this. We've got gifts, we've got food to worry about, where to park our relatives who are coming for the, you know, for the visit and they're staying too long. All of that stuff, if we could dig a little deeper and go down to the real story and reconnect ourselves with what's at the heart of Christmas. That's what we decided to do this December, and our series is called True Religion. And so far this month, we talked about true religion is revealed. It's not something that we go out and find or that we create. God reveals it to us. We said also true religion is supernatural. It's not about us just trying to be good or trying to learn a philosophy. It's a relationship between people and a supernatural God. So, of course, there are times where a supernatural God operates outside of the, the boundaries of what we consider natural. And that's especially true in the Advent narrative. And so that brings us to our topic this morning. We want to talk about the connection between true religion and worship. So let me start by asking you to bow your heads. We're going to pray, and then I'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we believe that you want to speak to us this morning. That you have something to say to us, that you want to move us or change us or prod us or encourage us or challenge us. We want to hear you. And I confess, God, that my weakness, my frailty, my humanness makes me a really poor messenger. So I pray that what is heard this morning would be your word and not mine. I pray that if there's something I say that is not from you, that you would just allow people to filter it out. We want to leave here this morning changed by the power that we believe comes from your word. So we give you this time and we ask for you to work powerfully. And we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, if we're going to talk about worship, and I would argue that true religion leads to worship, that worship is the natural outcome, it's the consequence, it's the destination. We're going to worship 
for all eternity when we get to heaven. So it's really important to God. But let's define worship then as we get started. So the Oxford Dictionary says, it's the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Kind of makes sense. If you want a more authoritative source, let's look at Wikipedia, which says, in Christianity, worship is the act of attributing reverent honor and homage to God. In the New Testament, various words are used to refer to the term worship. One is proskuneo, which means to worship, and that literally means to bow down. So either literally, you know, somebody is subject bowing before a king, or, or figuratively in our case, us yielding, submitting to God's authority over us. You may remember when God was talking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he said that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, David Mathis is a pastor and writer, and he says, look, Christian worship engages both heart and head. It necessitates true doctrine about the Father and the Son and the Spirit and their partnership in rescuing sinners, and it also requires due emotion about that doctrine. It's not primarily about the external ceremony or practice. It is both an affair of the heart and an affair of the mind. So we worship in spirit and truth. One other definition I want to give you this morning, and this is more of like just a perspective, a different look at worship. I learned this back when I was in seminary, so it's been a long time, and I can't tell you who it was. It, it was a, a speaker at seminary, it was a professor, it was a famous preacher who came there. I do not know. I have a mind like a steel sieve. So I apologize for not giving attribution to this person, but the basic idea is worship is recognizing how great God is, how broken we are, and fully understanding the great difference between us. So often we think that, you know, I'm here and I'm comparing myself to the people that are around me and I'm a pretty good guy. I don't cuss very much. I, I let people in on the way to work even though they're obnoxious. I let them get in front of me. I pack the kids' lunches. I look around me and I'm a pretty good person. And I compare myself to other people. What, what I really need to be doing is comparing myself to a holy and righteous God who is as far in the other direction as he could possibly be. I thought about, for an illustration, pulling out our 14-foot step ladder out here, and I could you know, try to get you to visualize how much higher God is than we are, who are like ants on the floor. But at the heart of worship, what we have to understand is that we worship a God who is amazing and incredibly and holy righteous. He's perfect in every way. He's never tempted to do anything wrong. He doesn't lose his temper. He is pure and holy. We can't even grasp how amazing he is. And that, you know, that's part of worship, but it's not all of worship. The other part of worshiping is realizing how desperate, how needy, how broken, how messed up we are. Now, we all typically clean up pretty good on Sunday mornings. We wear decent clothes. We, you know, kind of careful what we say, we're sort of polite to each other and all of that stuff, but if you wonder whether you're broken or messed up, just ask your spouse. Or if you have adult children, they can tell you about this too. So what we've got to do is realize how amazing God is, how needy we are, and then we need to fully grasp the massive distance between us. Because that's precisely the distance that Jesus traveled to redeem us, to rescue us. 
He stepped out of his eternal glory, which is where he belongs. And yet, out of love, he clothed himself in humanity and took on the limitations of being a man. And he lived among us, and he served us, and he taught about God. But then he demonstrated God's love for us by laying down his life on a cross. That distance, understanding that and really apprehending that, that is hugely important to our understanding of worship. So this morning, we're going to look again at Luke chapter 1. We've been camped out on Luke chapter 1. It is a lengthy chapter. It's about 80 verses, but there is just so much content in it. That's why the first three weeks of this series are just in chapter 1, and there's not enough time to cover it all. So Ed touched on part of this story last week. Let me try to bring you up to speed. You know about Mary and how the angel appeared to her and told her about what was to come. But you may not know that Luke chapter 1 is where there are two miraculous birth stories and they intertwine, they interconnect. Elizabeth and Zechariah were an elderly, godly couple. Both had grown up in families that were part of the priesthood. So they had generation after generation of priestly people in their family who were deeply committed to serving God. Zechariah was a priest himself, but they had never been able to have children and they were very elderly at this point. For decades, they had tried unsuccessfully to have kids. Now, in their culture, having children was seen as a blessing from God. It meant your family line continued. It meant there were extra hands to help with family responsibilities, and there was someone to care for you when you got old. There was no other way for old people to be taken care of. There weren't retirement communities or Social Security or anything like that. It was your kids. But not having kids wasn't just like, wow, that's sad. Not having kids was the exact opposite of being a blessing. It was considered a curse, a punishment from God. So beyond all the disappointment and heartache and loss they must have felt over just time after time of hoping for a child and then realizing like, no, I'm not pregnant at all. And finally, letting go of the hope. And with that loss came shame and disgrace and shunning from the people around them, looking down on them, judging them, talking behind their backs, wondering, what did those people do? They seem so nice, but why is God judging them? They must have done something really bad. So they were, in some respects, social outcasts. Zechariah one day is serving in a very special role in the temple in Jerusalem. He's burning the incense in the sanctuary of the Lord. And while he's in the sanctuary, an angel appears to him and says, The Lord has answered your prayer, Zechariah. Your wife is going to have a baby, a son. You're going to name him John, and you and your wife are going to be overjoyed. And many more people than the two of you will rejoice about this baby's birth because God is going to use him in a mighty way. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. And he'll turn many Israelites back to the Lord. He'll be the, the same kind of guy, the same sort of spirit and power as the Old Testament prophet Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. Well, Zechariah was skeptical. And I can kind of relate to that. The older I get, I think the more skeptical and the more cynical I get. He and Elizabeth were old and they had tried over and over again, but they had always been childless. They had always been disappointed. And I don't know about you, but for me, when there is a hurt, and it seems like God is unconcerned with my hope for a certain thing, I tend to just kind of like, I don't know, 
wall that off so that I don't have to think about it, but I end up carrying that around with me, that disappointment. And it becomes a part of who I am, and it impacts some of my thoughts about God, some of my feelings about myself. I can imagine all this stuff is going through Zechariah's head. Zechariah is skeptical, and the angel, Gabriel, I imagine with a little irritation in his voice, says, I am Gabriel! I stand in the very presence of God, and he is the one who sent me with this news. How dare you, Zechariah, be doubtful. You're a man of God. You've invested your whole life in this. How many times have you seen an angel? Since you don't believe, you will be silent until all that I have said has come to pass. So when Zechariah comes out of the sanctuary, the the people in the outer courts who have been praying, they're anxiously awaiting because he's been in there a long time. And when he comes out, he can't communicate with them. He's silent. He's making all these weird gestures. They have no idea what he's getting at. He had some kind of vision or he was in a trance or something, some wild encounter with God. We may look at this and go, wow, God kind of was short-tempered with him. He just expressed a little bit of doubt. Perhaps there is a, a sense of punishment to this, but I also can't help but think that every time Zechariah wondered if God was going to follow through on his promise, and he started to say something to his wife. It was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I think God was serious about this. He couldn't speak. Uh, later in the chapter, we find that people tried to do signs with him, so apparently he couldn't hear either. When the angel said, you're going to be silent, they meant silent. And so Zechariah had this powerful proof with him for nine months that what Gabriel said would come to pass. He goes home. Soon after that, his wife becomes pregnant. It's clearly a miraculous supernatural thing because they are way beyond childbearing years. Think of somebody who's like 70, 80, 90 years old. Luke tells us that Elizabeth hid herself away for the next five months. That's an interesting choice of words, but I can imagine she probably wasn't sure, like, you know, weird things are going on. I, yeah, I'm not sure I want to go out in public and deal with the questions and she was older, and you know the kind of toll that a pregnancy can take even on a young woman. So for someone who might have been 70, 80 years old, she probably was a little tired. So she hid herself away for the next five months. And in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel visits Mary in Nazareth, and he tells Mary she will have a baby. So I had touched on this last week. Let's revisit it. You can follow along on the screen. We're starting uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, and it's also on mygateway.life, or you can look it up in your Bible. So Gabriel tells Mary she's going to have a baby, and she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, and even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And then Mary's response, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So Gabriel mentions to to Mary that her older cousin who lives out in the country is going to have a baby, even though she's elderly. This is clearly an encouragement to Mary. Look, God can do whatever he wants to do when it comes to the baby department, okay? And your cousin who... For as long as you've been around, you've known people have talked about her as being unable to conceive. She already has a baby. So if you have doubts, you ought to check her out. When we compare Mary's response to the angel with Zechariah's, we can see that 
even though she doesn't understand the how, she has no question about what God is able to do. In fact, she doesn't just believe him, she submits to him. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever he wants is what I want. And her prayer to God is, may what you have said come to pass. In other words, may God do what he said he is going to do. Mary was obviously a woman of great faith. And it gives us some insight into why God chose her to be the mother of Jesus. Luke's account goes on. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of the greeting, your greeting, reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So get the picture. Mary, teenage, unwed mother, walks 50, 60, 70 miles to the hill country of Judea to see her cousin Elizabeth. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why, but perhaps it was to kind of like contemplate and figure out all that the angel had told her and what kind of change this was going to bring to her life. Maybe she just wanted to be away from the questions and the judgment from the people around who, who would not understand even if she told them the truth. They would just look at her with disapproving eyes. And of course, she would have had plenty of encouragement from Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, even though Elizabeth had no idea that Mary was coming or that Mary was pregnant, as soon as she hears Mary's voice, her baby inside, who will become John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, her baby goes nuts. He's leaping around. I don't, you know, don't know what particular dance he's doing, but he is really excited. And the Holy Spirit comes upon her and she prophesies. She is speaking the truth that God has revealed to her. And she blesses Mary and the baby and she somehow recognizes that Mary's baby is the Lord, the Messiah, the long-expected one. This was the first time that John and Jesus would ever meet. I mean, think about that. And the Holy Spirit's in the mix. That's two-thirds of the Trinity right there in Elizabeth's living room. I mean, it's crazy. And she is just so overcome with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine how miraculous that three months would have been? John, in Scripture, we don't have any indication that John meets Jesus until about 30 years later. And he is so excited that Jesus, the cousin he's heard about, he recognizes him as the Lamb of God. But even in the womb, he's got a six-month head start on Jesus, and it's like, hey, 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 what's going on? Why don't you come over here? I can... I don't know, I imagine the women sitting together on the couch and, you know, their stomachs are like doing something weird, but pretty remarkable three months they spend. Right up until the time Elizabeth's child was born, I'm sure Mary would have gotten tons of encouragement from a godly woman like Elizabeth, somebody who wasn't just months ahead of her in terms of the pregnancy, but who was years ahead of her in terms of life experience and trusting God. And think how helpful it would have been for Elizabeth to have someone younger, so enthusiastic about her pregnancy. I can imagine Elizabeth going like, yeah, I'm, I'm really 
excited about this. And, and Mary going like, oh my gosh, this is so wonderful. You know, and, and being there to help her out, so helpful that she was willing to walk days to get to Elizabeth and spend months with her. Man, I can't imagine that nobody's made a movie about that yet. That, that seems like there's a lot of story material there. Mary, after this greeting from Elizabeth, she goes into a song which is the first of two songs. This is the only chapter I know of in all of the Bible where there are two spontaneous, spirit-led songs that are captured in the same handful of paragraphs. Uh, both uh, Zechariah later in the chapter and Elizabeth here, the Holy Spirit comes on them and they say things that are so much further than they would have ever said on their own. They're prophetic. They just stand out even among biblical literary styles. We do not have time to dig into these. I mean, there are people that have written books. They've written songs, the Magnificat. There are many, many songs written about Mary's song here captured in Luke 1. There's lots of writing on Zechariah, and we just don't have time to dig into it. But I would love for you, when you have time, to go back and read those. It's just about 10 verses long. So after this song, we're told in verse 56 that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and returned home. And then when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. So then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. This ceremony is Jewish tradition that on the eighth day, Male children would be circumcised. That was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and Abraham's ancestors. So the people of God, this was one of their ways of marking that. Family and friends would gather. There was a celebration. There was naming. They were dedicating the child to the Lord. Think of like our baby dedications, but with an edge. Anyway, so it was a very important thing. They get to the naming part of this ceremony and everyone assumed he'd have a family name. That's just how people did it back then. But Elizabeth, who would have communicated with Zechariah in writing since that encounter with the angel Gabriel nine months before, she knew, no, his name is going to be John. That doesn't make any sense to him. So they go to Zechariah, and Zechariah needs something to write on so he can communicate with them. And Zechariah says, his name is, it's done. His name is John. Now, John means gracious, because it's John who would foreshadow the gospel about Jesus. He's the one that prepared the way for Jesus, and in Jesus we see the most extreme expression of grace the world has ever known. So as soon as Zechariah mentions that this baby is going to be John, everyone is amazed because now he can speak. And whatever skepticism he had nine months earlier has turned to submission and obedience. So verse 64 says, Immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue set free. He began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Again, we don't have time to to go into Zechariah's song, but I would love for you to read it uh, when you have time. It's just about 10 verses that comes right after this passage. So when people who had gathered here realized all that had gone, how miraculous the conception was, 
how crazy it was that Elizabeth and Zechariah at their age had a baby, and then when the baby is born and they have this ceremony, now all of a sudden Zechariah's got his voice back and he starts singing this crazy song that tells us about God. They're just like, wow, if that's how this baby enters the world, just think about what's going to come after. I know that there was lots for them to talk about. It's clear that they were in awe, they wondered, they talked, they shared, everybody in their community knew about this. Now, in this passage, there are several insights about worship that I want us to take a look at. These are obvious in the Advent account, but these are also biblical themes that run throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and New. It's not an exhaustive list. I just want to touch on four things, but these are timely reminders to those of us who claim to follow Jesus as we worship this Christmas season. The first one is that the Holy Spirit fuels worship. So the Holy Spirit's mentioned in almost every paragraph of Luke chapter 1, over and over again. Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zechariah, even the baby boy still in the womb is impacted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is prompting, inspiring, directing, empowering, encouraging, and protecting. If we worship in spirit and truth, then who better than God's Spirit to energize our pursuit? So we want to invite the Holy Spirit into the middle of our worship, in the middle of our serving, in the middle of our study. We want to allow Him the freedom, give Him room to work, to change us, to reveal truth into us, to help put our thoughts and feelings into words and actions, to bring light to the dark areas of our heart, to, to elbow us in the heart. Hey, that's Pastor Ed. is talking about you. So we want to make room for the Holy Spirit, whether we're reading our Bible alone at home, or we're gathered with friends at small group, or we're worshiping on Sunday morning, or we're just going for a walk, and we're thinking about the day ahead of us. So questions for us would be, how can I get better at making space for the Holy Spirit? How can I better position myself for Him to speak to me and energize my worship? How do I turn down the background noise and better recognize His voice? A second truth about worship that comes out of this passage is that worship recognizes the truth about God and about us. He's merciful, he's powerful, he's holy and righteous. We're servants, we're in need of mercy. We're sinners, we struggle to believe, we're self-centered, and yet he loves us. Think about classic hymns like Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, we focus on God's incredible lavish gift of grace. How sweet the sound, just the, the idea of amazing grace floating. If you've ever tasted it in your own life, then you know what the hymn writer was talking about. A second line, that saved a wretch like me. We don't use the word wretch much anymore, but really that's who we are in this story. So worship is all about revealing the truth about God and about us, how great He is, how needy we are. Oftentimes, worship engages us in pursuing the truth, so we want to know new, more about the Scripture, about God's Word. We want to know more about uh, how God is at work in other people's lives. Mary, Elizabeth, and Zechariah knew 
Old Testament scripture really well. And scholars look at their songs and at their words in this passage and they compare them especially to the Old Testament prophets so they can find uh, where what Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah said was based on their understanding of scripture. Wow, wouldn't that be cool if what we said to each other, what we said about God was based on the truth of scripture? Sometimes we miss the truth and we rely on our own insight. We look at ourselves and we go, I look pretty good today. I I was pretty good in that meeting. I was smart. I like what I said to that guy. I told him what I thought. So sometimes we think too much of ourselves. Other times we think too little of ourselves. We believe the enemy. We think the truth is that we're a miserable failure and God could not be interested any less in us. How could he love somebody like me? If he knows my heart, if he knows what I've been thinking, if he knows what I've done, how could he love me? So we have to go to his word for the truth. Probably all of us could benefit from spending more time in the truth. So worship tells us the truth about ourselves and about God. Third thing, worship changes us and it changes others. So for us, it leads us to obedience. You think about Mary's experience with Gabriel, it was so overwhelming. But her immediate response is, okay, I'm in, God. Accomplish everything you want to do. I'm your servant. Where do I go next? Zechariah was uncertain when he encountered Gabriel, but over the next nine months, he had a lot of time to reflect on God, his abilities, his plans, his willingness to use old hillbillies. Simple, elderly, mountain people, and he got on board with God's plans. For us, there has to be that same kind of submission and obedience. Romans 12.1 tells us that authentic worship is us submitting our lives, our whole life, to God as a living sacrifice. That's the offering that he's interested in. And the more we know about God, the closer we grow to Jesus, then the more we ought to want to yield to his leadership, the more we ought to desire to be more like him. There's a pattern in Scripture, especially visible in the Old Testament. It starts with obedience, and obedience brings blessing, and then out of blessing, there's worship, and then that whole pattern cycles back again. Now, the Israelites often would throw in the cycle of disobedience, and then there were consequences to that, but the natural cycle for us is we obey God, He blesses, we worship, and then that drives us further towards obedience and further towards blessing, and further towards worship. When my son was a little, you know, probably two years old, that seems like uh, around the, the time that we ended up realizing that, like, in the first couple of years, we thought he was really a submissive kid. I can remember thinking, like, oh, my gosh, if he listens to God like this and acts so quickly, he can be really powerful in the kingdom. And then he turned two. And uh, we would notice, we tell him to do something, and you see little tiny wheels turning in his head. And he's like evaluating, like, I'm not sure I want, wait, what would the consequence, hmm, you know. And so we developed the habit of saying, hey, Joe, obey quickly. And it was kind of like, you don't need to think about this. You know what needs to happen, so do it quickly. And I can't help but think that God would say the same thing to me. Hey, it's pretty clear what you need to do. Alex, obey quickly. May we obey quickly, because worship ought to change us and drive us towards obedience. It can also 
have an impact on the people around us, not just our circle of friends at church as we share what God is doing in our life and that encourages them, or they share what's going on with them and that encourages us, but also as we share with the people around us, our coworkers, the people we go to school with, our neighbors. When we talk about the prayers that God is answering for us, the rough edges He's polishing off in our lives, the way that He's challenging our thinking or changing us, they can be challenged and encouraged by our experience. And just like Elizabeth and Zechariah's experience with God made their neighbors wonder in amazement and think about like, whoa, what's God doing over there at their house? Maybe if people saw what God was doing at our house, it would give them a reason to consider what God's blessing could look like in their life. December 24th is one of like two times People have studied and said that there, there are two times a year that people who don't go to the church are most likely to respond to an invitation to go to church from somebody they know. Easter and Christmas Eve. A really simple way for us to do this, to influence our neighbors, would be like, wow, I had such a blast at my Christmas Eve service at my church last year. We're doing this family service, two of them in the afternoon. Kids come and scream, and we got this stuff. It's all, it's great. It's a 45-minute service. I don't know if you guys are into that, but you ought to come with us. We can go grab a bite afterwards. Like, people really would be open to that. And if we let them know what God is doing in our lives, it could make a difference for them as well. A fourth observation that I want you to think about here, and I'll close with this, is that worship isn't just for happy people in pleasant places. I think oftentimes we think when God is blessing, like, I want to go to church and sing some songs about God. This is real. And some of you, I'm really happy that you're doing well right now. You got all your Christmas shopping done. You got the food lined up. You got, you know, life is good. That's fantastic. Have you ever seen a Hallmark movie? I have walked in at various portions of those. I don't know that I've ever willingly sat through one, but what I like about Hallmark movies is you know how they're going to end. On Christmas Eve, it's going to snow, they'll fall in love. And so I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm just going to take a stab at this. So I would argue, and I think most of the guys would agree with me, that just by looking at the title, I can give you the plot line, okay? So, oh, Christmas tree, I bet you the guy is a banker. He loses his job in New York City. He goes home to, you know, for Christmas, a little town, and old Joe, the neighbor next door, has a heart attack, and he needs help at his Christmas tree stand. So... Cute guy goes to the Christmas tree stand just to help out old Joe, and he meets the girl of his dream. So the next one is a perfect Christmas. So I'm thinking she's a perfectionist, a control freak, and he's a slob, right? (laughs) Hilarity ensues, but they're together. Uh, Actually, this is Saturday, July 16th, so we didn't even wait for Christmas. I mean, this is great. All right, third one, the night before Christmas. I'm thinking she falls asleep, has a dream, and, you know, night, horses, all of that stuff. And then she wakes up and realizes, like, oh, my gosh, that's the guy next door. How could that be? So uh, Hallmark movies are great. You know, life is perfect. Everything falls in your favor. It all works out. But that's not true for us in real life. And worship is not just for happy people in pleasant places. So you think about Mary and Elizabeth. A lifetime of heartache. Now, I know they were excited about having John, but that didn't just immediately erase decades of desperation and hopelessness and fear. Some of you have lost children, and you have another baby, but that doesn't mean that that ache isn't there. 
We don't know from Scripture that, that Elizabeth and Zechariah lived to see John's ministry. But if they had, they would have seen John take a stand against the religious establishment and call them out for their hypocrisy. They would have seen him take a stand against the king for his immorality. And they would have seen him thrown in prison and ultimately beheaded. So, Zechariah and Elizabeth are happy in these few verses, but that doesn't mean they lived a happy life in Pleasantville. Think about Mary. I mean, Mary's so excited here at the beginning of her adult life. She's looking ahead, but if she could have seen that she would lose her husband in the next 30 years, and she'd be a single mom, a widow, raising her family, that once her oldest son began his earthly ministry, people would come to him and say, you know, Mary, I think you need some psychological help. He's talking about stuff that's kind of crazy. Think about Mary standing at the foot of the cross, watching her son die the most unjust and cruel death. Worship isn't just for happy people in pleasant places. It's for people who just lost somebody they loved, a husband, a spouse, a, a, a parent, a child. It's for people who just lost their jobs six weeks before Christmas. It's for people who got a diagnosis that just crushed them. It's for people whose marriages are unraveling. It's for people who have a tenuous relationship with their adult children or their adult parents or their adult siblings. It's for people who are struggling spiritually, not sure that they really are are willing to entrust their life to Christ. It's for people who struggle with the emotional load they're carrying, and sometimes they can't carry it. See, there's a room for people like us to worship. So the challenge for us is to be honest before God. We try to make everybody else feel like we got it all together and that there's, you know, I'm doing great, thanks for asking. But at the gut level, God wants us to be honest. We're broken. We're struggling. Some of us are just trying to get out of bed in the morning, get through another day. But God, who is perfect and holy and loving and righteous, he sees us, and he doesn't stay distant or disconnected. He enters into that, and he walks with us through it. I want to close with uh, just some... Silence here. Some awkward silence, actually. It's going to be long enough that it'll feel really weird. Zechariah spent nine months and eight days in silence. But I imagine that during that time, it was very easy for him to communicate with God. That was the only person that he could easily converse with. So I want to ask you to bow your head. The worship team will come back up and we'll sing after we end here. But Let's just try to listen to God. And if things are great for you, that's awesome. Thank God for that. If things are not great for you, realize that worship is for you. Let's just spend some time talking to God and listening for his voice. Spirit of God, you are called in Scripture the comforter. So I pray that you would comfort those who desperately need comfort. Jesus, we believe you're the light of the world, and so would you please light the path for us. Help us to see what you desire for us and from us. Help us to walk in your footsteps. God in heaven, we are so grateful that you 
saw our desperate need. And out of love, out of grace, out of mercy and compassion, you became God with us. So Jesus, we want to worship you this Christmas season. We want to worship you this morning. And we don't want to do it with somber, heavy hearts. In spite of the circumstance, we choose to believe the truth about you. And we receive your love and your mercy and grace in this season. And we give you honor and glory because you deserve it. So we ask you to receive our worship. Amen. Worship speaks truth. Worship is filled with the Holy Spirit. Worship changes us. So let's practice what we preach. Uh, we're going to continue singing some Christmas carols this morning. Would you stand with us? The music, uh, music isn't the only way to worship. It's just one of many forms, but it's, we believe that music is the language of the heart. So it's one of the primary ways that we worship corporately together on Sunday mornings. So together, let's sing this. Hark the Herald.
do uh, one more song before we get dismissed. Sunday morning. Have a great Sunday and a great week. You may go in peace.